of you to join us in here, out there, every which way you can be with us. And uh, we're glad to have you. If you're visiting, we are very glad to have you. If you're here quite regularly, we're glad you're here. Um, if you're here and you're awake and you're paying attention, uh, I really like that too as the preacher guy. So last week we uh, spent some time uh, talking about Jesus' teaching style and uh, specifically his use of parable and what he is doing there, how parables, they uh, invite us to uh, explore things. They arouse curiosity. They offer uh, something for those who are initiated and who are seeking the Lord, and they offer something for those who are hard-hearted because uh, they give us things to think about, like little ticking time bombs they get inside our hearts, and we think about, well, what kind of sun am I like? I wonder what kind of soil would describe the condition of my heart. And so we spend some time uh, chewing on those things and thinking about those things. Parables, we don't exactly spit them out quickly or easily. So this is kind of a, a third area of teaching that uh, Jesus does where we've been time, trying to consider what, are, what, are, what is he doing when he's teaching? And um, if you're not understanding what Jesus is trying to do when he's teaching, some of the value of what is there can be missed uh, by us. So we've talked about a principle of inversion. Is there an inversion of some kind in this text? And what that means is the primary one uh, when it comes to Jesus' teaching in the kingdom of God, uh, many who are first will be last and the last will be first. An inversion or a paradox, if you will. And then uh, sometimes when Jesus is teaching, he is challenging a prevailing cultural assumption. Uh, is there conventional thinking at hand of who is in and who is out, of who is blessed or who is not blessed? Is the blessed one really the one who just takes for themselves and takes care of things themselves? And then parables that work on multiple levels and uh, if you are understanding what the soils represent and what it means when the weeds grow alongside and what it means when the birds come and snatch the seed away and you, you understand certain things, there's something for you. But even for a hard-hearted person, uh, you, you kind of hear the story and it arouses curiosity and it invites you into further exploration. So Jesus' teachings, they come to us in parable, they come to us in paradox, they challenge the accepted norms, and uh, Jesus teaches this way in order to help break us out of our ruts, uh, to challenge our lack of faith, uh, to cause us to think about the assumptions that we have, about what reality is, about who is blessed, about what does a good life look like, See, the reality of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, it is primarily a reality of the heart. And Jesus teaches the way he does because he wants to address the heart. Because he understands all too well that when the heart is not right, our actions will not be right either. Uh, when Jesus gets us thinking, when Jesus gets us questioning our assumptions, thinking about the condition of my heart, 
Inevitably, that leads me to a place where I recognize some of the ways I've gotten off course, some things that have to change, some things that aren't right. Uh, and when I realize I'm, uh, I'm off course, I have a choice. Uh, we try to pretend like we don't realize when we get off course, and we tell ourselves certain stories to justify when we are off course. Uh, but we have a choice, and when we choose to get right with God and to change our actions, that is called repentance. Repentance is not the burden that we've made it out to be. Repentance is a marvelous gift. Uh, but if we do not repent when we realize that we've gotten off course, we do typically one, or two, uh, one of two things. Uh, either we are in open rebellion. I don't care. I don't give a that's just the way it is. Deal with it. So either you are in open rebellion or, more typically, we pretend. We pretend like there's not a problem. We pretend that everything's okay. We pretend like, oh, I didn't know that this needs to change or there's a problem here. Or... <laughs> and when we pretend, we're faking it. And when we're faking it, we're wearing a mask. And in an environment where we feel obliged to fake it, and so many churches get stuck in places like this, where we feel like we can't call a spade a spade, and we just got to pretend to be, everything's okay, I got my church face, I got my church behaviors. I, when we get into a place where we feel like we're obliged to pretend, it, it really... Um, it gets us in a bad place because the Holy Spirit does not bless that. It distances us from the healing that we truly need uh, from the when we can't be sincere about our needs and our conditions, uh, when we have to pretend like everything's okay, then inevitably we get cynical and uh, we feel like everyone is just like us then. Oh, they're they're all faking it. Everyone's a pretender. There's, there's nothing that's really good. There's no one who is really good. We tend to look at those things that are the worst about people and the worst about the church. And uh, it's just a tough place to be in and a tough place to live. But repentance... Uh, when we realize it's not, a sh I mean, sometimes there will be guilt and shame associated with repentance. Don't get me wrong. The Lord uses that too. And there's good things that come from that. But it's really a tremendous gift because it frees us from both rebellion and the need to try to pretend. The need to pretend like everything's okay and wear a mask when things are not okay. It frees us from faking it because repentance really is about waking up and getting back on course. See, Jesus' concern is for the heart and the condition of the heart. And the Holy Spirit uses the teachings of Jesus and the other New Testament writers and other biblical writers to help show us the condition of our heart to reveal the condition of our heart to us, because a lot of times our own hearts are a mystery to us. Why did I react that way? Why did I explode in anger at this situation? Why did I feel obliged to just pretend like everything is okay when it's really not okay? 
See, Jesus' reason for focusing on the heart rather than outward conformity to a set of rules is because Jesus knows that our desires, our desires, they flow out of our heart. And when our hearts are wrong, we desire wrong things. And when our hearts are right, we desire right things. But if we desire wrong things in our hearts, wrong actions will inevitably follow. Does that make sense? And so Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. It's like, you have heard that it was said, but I say. He's trying to get to the heart that is behind the action. Because when we keep things at the level of action and external conformity to a set set of rules and things like that, inevitably we fail Inevitably, we find ourselves in situations where I have to pretend like everything's okay when it's really not. The Lord frees us from that burden. Praise God. Can I get an amen on that? Good, you are alive. So Jesus is trying to get to the, to the heart because our desires come from our heart. Uh, Hosea 10, 2 through 12. I like this. The New Living Translation puts this part. The hearts of the people are fickle. They are guilty and must be punished. A fickle heart, a double-minded heart, a lukewarm heart. And then the way Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? There is a cure for a deceitful heart. His name is Jesus. And uh, if you have lived long enough, you have some idea of what it's like to desire the wrong things, don't you? To desire things you know you shouldn't desire. And you have probably learned, even some of us at a young age, that uh, your desires can get out of whack. Your desires can dominate your life. Your desires can become obsessive, they can become compulsive, they can ruin your life. So maybe you know in your mind that a second donut is not good for you, but you take it anyway because you desire it. Does that make sense? Well, what if it's not the second donut? What, what, what point does it become a sin? What if it's the fifth donut? Is that a different situation then? What if it's the ninth donut? And then I go into the bathroom stall and put my fingers down the throat so I can throw it all up. See, our desires, if they get out of whack, they can ruin our lives. And we understand this, how that, how that works. And this is why uh, the writer of the Proverbs says this, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Our desires are so important. And when we uh, give ourselves to desires uh, as our God and as our first thing, it becomes about Calvin's pleasure, Calvin's comfort, Calvin's security, etc., etc. When my desires get out of whack like that, they can... Uh, destroy my life. (coughs) But desire itself, 
says it's a wellspring of life, uh, a heart is. Your desires are a source of life energy. Uh, they're a source of passion. It's good to desire things. Uh, desires are a tremendous blessing. But without discipline, without boundaries, without directions, without uh, uh, steering them in the right ways, they can, if you turn them into an idol, if you make them your primary concern and you, you, you turn them into your God, they will ruin you. They will destroy your life. If our hearts desire wrong things, if they're directed at wrong things, if we feed our heart wrong things and we keep doing that, that leads us to places like addiction. Uh, drug addiction, sexual addiction, food addiction, habitual patterns of desire that are running amok and ruining our lives. Your desires, not rightly redeemed by Jesus, can ruin your life. And let me just say, by the way, because people have a wrong idea about Christianity, that we're killjoys, that we're against desire, that uh, we just try to repress desire, that, you know, we're just trying to create spiritual robots that really don't have any true emotions, that just, you know, say the right things and the right prayers and the right... Christians are not against desire. And the goal of the Christian life isn't to purge you and purge people of their desires to repress them, pretend like they don't exist. The Christian life is all about desire. It's all about fulfilling desire, refining our desires, directing our desires in such a way that instead of destroying your life, our desires, our heart gives life. Our heart protects life. Our heart and when we desire the right things, we become safe for ourselves. We become safe for other people around us. We make situations better around us. Desire rightly channeled and rightly understood and rightly redeemed through the work of the Holy Spirit himself. It grows virtue. It grows love. It grows love. Ultimately, our desires rightly harnessed, directed at the hands of the Lord, are a tremendous source of blessing and well-being. And that's what I think the goal of all that is, is it grows our capacity to love. And love, if you know what love is, love is all about desire. Love is all about desire. Think of that beautiful passage in 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, you have to have desire to be patient, to be kind, to not envy, to not boast, to not delight in what's evil, but to rejoice in the truth. Rejoicing is a word of desire. To always protect, always trust, always hope, always persevere. That's all the language of desire. The Lord grows our desire. And we're not trying to purge that away, <coughs> cut that off and pretend to be things we're not. But really, that energy we have, rightly focused, uh, 
our intellectual energy, our, our sexual energy, all, what, whatever, whatever ways that we're parsed of it, where we think, I've got to take care of this myself. I got the Lord can harness all of those things, all of that desire, and direct it toward things that are holy, things that make me safe to love you and you to love me without harming each other. I like the way C.S. Lewis puts it in uh, his book, The Weight of Glory. He says this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered to us, and like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, uh, he can't imagine what is meant because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Far too easily pleased. It's not about destroying your desire. It's not about repressing emotions and feelings. It's about directing them in paths of righteousness and holiness that become a blessing and a source of life, not just for ourselves, but for people around us. All right. Here's kind of what I think about desire. Um, You and I were created with infinite desires. We have hearts that keep producing desire after desire after desire. And when we think we satisfy this desire, this desire pops up, and it keeps coming back. We have infinite desires. We have hearts that just create desire. Doesn't it make sense to entrust our infinite desires to the only person in the universe who has infinite power and infinite love? And so Jesus' teaching comes to us as a diagnostic tool to help us figure out what's going on in our hearts. His teaching It helps us understand our hearts, and it helps direct our desires into healthy directions. And and like righteousness is a desire that can become very powerful. Holiness is a desire. Love is a desire. It, it, It gives all of this life energy to us. So his, his teachings come to us as a diagnostic tool to figure out what's going on. <coughs> so like, not, not like cool old cars like Charlie drives, but like new cars, you plug in computers to have them tell you what's going on with the, with the car. So you go to the mechanic and they have a diagnostic tool, this little computer thing, they, they hook it in, let's drive a Tesla and this just all happens automatically or whatever. Uh, it's a diagnostic tool to figure out, well, what's the problem with what's going on with the car? So Jesus' teaching are a kind of di- diagnostic tool. So consider uh, this verse from Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. <coughs> what is the treasure you're chasing? It's a diagnostic tool. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
Where's your treasure? Because we can set our hearts and our desires on things that are fleeting, on things that are transitory. We can set our hearts on things that can deteriorate. We can set our hearts on things that can be taken away from you. Versus we can set our hearts on things that can't be taken from us. They don't fade. And really, it's things like love. It's things like relationships. The experiences that we have. So at the rest of this, uh, our time this morning, we're going to look at some of these diagnostic tools that Jesus gives us. Uh, and we're going to spend some time looking at two, two little parables in Luke chapter 14. All right, let me read this section for us. This is Luke 14, 7 through 11. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table... He told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, hey, give this man your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, So that when the host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up here to the better place. And then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So what is the occasion for this teaching? What is is the situation that brings up this teaching that, that Jesus is dealing with? He noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table. That's the occasion that Jesus is addressing. Have you seen this? Have you seen this at work in the real world? You go right away to your group of friends, and you're blind to people around you. You go to my, I go to my people. I go to my place, I get in line, and I expect to get served in the order that I'm in. And when someone tries to get ahead of me, ooh, watch out. Watch out. People jockeying for position, jockeying for the good seats. I've got to take care of me here because no one else will. That's the situation that Jesus is addressing. So remember what we talked about pride before. Pride isn't thinking about yourself too highly. Pride is more about just discounting and ignoring people around you. So pride is really you see people around you too low, and you don't factor other people in. You are presuming because of pride. You presume you deserve. You presume you need to be at the head of the table. You presume you are the brightest or the best looking or the most capable. And maybe you're not the best. At least I'm better than that guy. 
And, oh yeah, her. Yeah, and so it's this comparing and trying to navigate these social situations. Pride, that's pride at work. Maybe fear, I think mostly pride. Constantly sizing up the room, constantly comparing, constantly making judgments. Oh, they need to go there. Oh, this is the person who's really important for this. Oh, this is the one that the church really needs their gifts and their talents. But they don't really do much. They're not all of these kind of a system of comparing and judgments, whether it's in school, whether it's in workplaces, whether it's just our consumer mentality in a, in a capitalistic culture, we're, we're, we're in a system of judgment. And a system where I need to advocate for myself and I need to take care of things for myself sometimes. So do you think Jesus is seriously concerned about people thinking that you are important? Is he giving us a recipe for shining in social situations? No, no, I got to sit. Jesus said so. I've got to sit in the card table in the kitchen with the kids. No, he, he, he has given a command and I'm going to do this. He's not giving us laws. He's helping us question our assumptions. Remember what we've said about Jesus' teaching style. A principle of inversion, an assumption, a cultural assumption he's challenging, a parable. If we know there's a parable at work, then we know that things represent other things, right? So that question is, is there, is there a parable in this text? Yes. Well, how do you know it's a parable, Calvin? He told them this parable. So automatically I know that there's some stuff that needs to be figured out because this is a parable. I know that this, there's probably layers of meaning. There's a mystery that needs to be figured out. I know in a parable that the circumstances are the people or numbers. They represent things bigger that are going on. So I know that this story is not just about a banquet at a wedding feast. I know that this relates somehow to life and to my heart in a way that is bigger than just the context of this story. That's what, that's what we figure out. So when we figure out it's a parable, we ask different questions, right? Question two. Uh, is there a prevailing cultural assumption that Jesus is challenging in this text? Is there a prevailing cultural assumption that Jesus is challenging in this text? I would say yes. He's challenging the horrible practice of a social pecking order. The horrible practice of, uh, I, I got to take care of myself, and so don't get in my way. I got to take care of me and mine. And if you, get in your, if you get in my way, that's your fault. And if I have to stomp on a few people to get and push them out of the way to get what's mine, I'm going to do it. And you should have known better. I deserve better than that person. I, I may be not at the front of the table, but man, you need to... You need to move that guy out somewhere else. 
and it, they don't belong there. You don't take care of yourself, no one else will. The squeaky wheel is, in fact, the one that deserves the grease. What Jesus is doing, he's not giving us a set of laws. He's helping us question our assumptions. So I ask myself this question. Where am I helping myself to the best of the best with no thought or consideration to the people around me? In your life, where is this happening? There's stuff there. You sit and think about it. Where in my life am I presuming that I am the most deserving, I'm the most important, I'm... These are kind of like squirm-in-your-seat kind of questions. Are they not? They are for me. Is there a principle of inversion taking place in this text? Yeah, there's that too. There's also a principle of inversion. And it is this. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Where it gets us questioning. What we thought was the top is in fact the bottom and the bottom is, in fact, the top. It's a kind of paradox, but it illustrates a truth, questioning our assumptions. So Jesus goes on with his teaching, and this is from Luke 14, uh, 12 through 14. Then Jesus said to the host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, or relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous, Jesus says. So, this text, now if we're looking for laws, we see that this text clearly states that you are not supposed to have your relatives over for a meal. Do not invite your relatives. Isn't that what the text says? Some of you have been looking for this verse for a really long time. Thank goodness. I knew it was in the Bible there somewhere. <laughs> Jesus isn't giving you a law saying you're never supposed to feed your mother-in-law. He's just saying, for goodness sake, sometimes do something nice for someone who can't do anything back in return. Help someone who you know is never going to give you help back. Go with no expectation. Give with no expecta expectation of what you're going to get out of it. Do that sometimes too. 
And so Jesus is addressing this tit-for-tat, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. Uh, Jesus is addressing this way of thinking, I'll take care of you if, wink, wink, you take care of me. It's a, it's a, it's a certain mentality we have. If I'm going to do something for you, then there needs to be something in it for me. We live that way in this culture sometimes. We take stuff like that into this church building sometimes. If the church does what I like, then I will reward the church with my attendance. I will let my children attend your Sunday school. I will, from time to time, drop a tenor in the box in the back. But when you stop performing the way I think you should be performing, if you do things that I don't like the way you're doing it, I will take my business somewhere else, thank you very much. So I'm not saying there's never a time to change churches. There are times to change churches. Absolutely, there are. There are times when the best thing you can do is to walk away from a situation of pretending, a situation that's become toxic. But Jesus' teaching, it challenges a consumer mentality, doesn't it? Even in places like church where we come and ask questions, not out loud, but in our hearts, what is in it for me? What do I get out of this? See, most of the time, Jesus' teaching, especially when it comes to uh, parables and challenging prevailing assumptions, he's not giving us a set of laws to obey as much as he's showing us helping us question our assumption and showing us what it's like to live in the kingdom of heaven. See, if I'm living from faith, if I'm living in trust under the reign of God inside the kingdom of heaven, if I trust that God sees, God knows, God will handle, God will take care of, God will provide, if I trust that, and if I live from that place, I don't have to play the game of a social pecking order. I don't have to play the game of I'll give, but what's in it for me? You know, and, and I'm not the most important. I get that. But man, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely more important than that guy. If I'm living by faith in the kingdom of God, I am free to give and not expect anything in return. And when we begin to live that way in faith, I discover that I'll scratch, I'll, if I scratch your back, you scratch mine is not the only way to live in this world. And so the principle of inversion that we looked at um, uh, from the last parable, it's the same situation explained a different way. It's another way of everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted.
Jesus is describing the truth of this. So Dylan, you can come up. My invitation is, you know, you want prayers of this church to put the Lord on a baptism. Uh, we always do that, and there's always an open invitation for that here in this church. See, Jesus isn't teaching us that we should never advocate for ourselves, but rather he is challenging our assumptions that we always need to control the people in the situations around us. See, when the kingdom of God shows up, and when you want to know when it's real in the kingdom of God, this always leads you into greater freedom. Greater freedom. That's one of the litmus tests. Is this real? Well, I'm freer than I was. Because now my need for justice, my need for fairness, my need for my fair share, uh, my need for, okay, I'll do this, but what are you going to do for me? All of that we begin to put that on God's tab. You do that, and then you realize it's all from God anyway. Sometimes we wake up to that reality. It blows my mind every time I think about it. I thought this was mine. I'm going to put that on your tab, Lord. I'm not going to retaliate in anger, but this person really deserved it. Boy, they were just out of line. I'll put that on your tab, Lord. And we realize, inevitably, it's not like none of us are getting a fair shake. Everyone's getting better than we deserve. We are all the ones who came in at the 11th hour to work the fields. We're all that person. So in the kingdom of God, I don't have to live in a social pecking order and figure out where I belong and where everyone else belongs. Isn't that freedom when you don't have to do that? In the kingdom of God, I don't have to give with the expectation of getting something back. Isn't that freedom? I don't have to keep score anymore. Isn't that freedom? I don't have to manage the people around me with my anger with my, my, my way or the highway mentality. When I don't have to manage the people around me that way, isn't that freedom? When I don't have to explode and let them know how much I've, they've upset me or disappointed me, or I'm not saying there's never a time for that, but the kingdom of God sets us free so that other things can grow. It channels our desires so that those desires can be harnessed and rightly directed so that virtue can grow, love can grow. There's freedom associated with love as well. See, the, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. The Spirit of freedom is the spirit of the kingdom of God. And the spirit leads us into greater freedom where more and more we put things on God's tab and more and more we come in truth to reflect the image of his son and we bless people around us and our lives are filled with desire. Let's stand and sing together.